Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Well, today's going to be a little bit different. Um, normally, I try to tell a story that will grab your attention and, and, and make you lean in and hopefully listen. Today, we're just going to jump straight into the topic. And so we're going to look at why is homosexuality one of the most sensitive and divisive topics in our culture? And how should we as the church understand it and respond? Right, so why is homosexuality one of the most sensitive and divisive topics in our culture? And how should we as the church understand it and respond? If you've got your Bibles, let's, let's just jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Real quick, we're gonna not talk a ton about verses 12 through 20, uh, but in verse 12, what's happening here, I'm really tinny. Can you fix that, Jim? Thanks. Um, so in verse 12, what he's doing is he's quoting a common understanding in his culture, which would say that sex is not a big deal. He's quoting this idea that all things are permissible, that sex is just like an appetite. You're hungry, you eat food, you want to have sex, you have sex. It's not a big deal. And he's addressing that culture to say, no, it actually is a big deal. God takes this very seriously. God created us and designed us for a certain way of behaving with our sexuality. Verse 15, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of the prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He's using a pretty provocative illustration there. And so with this mindset that sex isn't a big deal, people could think that you could have an arrangement with someone like a prostitute and that on the back end, there's no emotional, financial, or, or any type of commitment expected. And so when he, when he gives this illustration, he said, no, no, even with that type of arrangement, there is still something spiritual happening. So the word for body and flesh are two different words. And one means just our physical body. The other means our body and our spirit. So he's saying when we are sexually active with something, something spiritual is taking place, something that is meant for something more. And then in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual morality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And, and so if we were to summarize verses 12 through 20 real quick, what Paul's saying is that the way we behave sexually is a big deal to God. It's more than just a, a appetite. It's more than just a physical connection. It's something spiritual. And that spiritual thing is meant to point us to how Christ has united himself and committed himself to us in a way that changes us for the better, right? So with that being said, now let's back all the way up to, to verses nine and 10. In verses nine and 10, you have this vice list, things that are sinful. Now in that vice list, um, you, you see what Paul's trying to say is, if this is you, if you are habitually living in these sins, then you should have no confidence in your salvation. Right? He's not saying that if you habitually live in sin, then you're not a Christian, but he's saying if that's the case for you, you should lose all confidence that your salvation is real. The watching world will look at you and even think, I'm not sure if they truly know Christ. So he's saying, be careful in the way that you behave. Now, that list is meant to be expansive. Okay, the list is meant to be expansive and that's by design. So when he talks about being a swindler, that's, that's a word that we don't really talk about or think about a lot, but it doesn't mean illegal business practice. So when, a, when someone is a swindler, it doesn't mean that they are practicing business illegally or, or doing shady things. It means that a person is ruthless in their practice of business. It means someone that is doing things within the, the boundaries of the law, but they are ruthless to make as much money as possible. All right, so, so that's a topic that, that is frowned upon by God for people to be ruthless in their business practice. It talks about being a, a reviler or a gossip. I recently heard that gossip is just like pornography. It's, it's having no commitment to the person and getting off at their expense, right? And so there, there are all these things in this list that is meant to be a gut punch to every single one of us. There's something in this list that we should look at and go, that might be my deal. That might be my struggle, all right? And so this should be something that gives us all pause and lead us all to do some self-reflecting on how we are living our lives in light of the grace that God has given us. But as a culture, we tend to zoom in and really focus on the one topic of homosexuality. I said last week that to do that is to do a disservice to how this vice list functions in the larger context. But at the same time, I know that this is something we need to talk about, especially as a church. And I, and I, wanna, I wanna work through it in a way that hopefully we can begin to think through it in a, in a Christ-like and biblical way where we're filled with grace and truth. But let's face it, homosexuality is something that's not just a theory to talk about. This isn't some distant issue in a third world country that we're not impacted by. When I think about this, this is family. This is friends. This is neighbors. This is people that I live life with. And chances are that's you as well. And so for us, this, this is such a sensitive and divisive topic because this issue is personal. These, these, are, these, aren't, these aren't theories on a paper. These are names and faces and people that we love, right? And so I think for that reason, it gets to the point where it's a lot more sensitive, where it's a touchy thing. Uh, and more and more, I'm hearing people say that, you know, I used to think that homosexuality was wrong. 
But the more I get to know people who are gay, the more I realize that they're not any worse than me, that we're, we're actually on the same footing. And so because of that, people are starting to think, well, maybe it's not wrong. Maybe, maybe I was off in the past by thinking it was wrong, but the more I get to know people who are, who are homosexual, the more I'm beginning to think that maybe this isn't actually wrong. And so what's happening is, is we've seen ourselves up here and we've seen people who struggle with homosexuality is down here. And what we're saying is that the more I've gotten to know them, to hear their stories, to, to do life with them, I've realized that they are on equal footing with me. And so what we do is we elevate them to equal footing with ourselves. Right? Now, the elevation of equal footing is what needs to happen. Or not the elevation, but just the equal footing concept is what needs to happen. But instead of elevating someone in sin to equal footing with us up here, we need to see ourselves down here. Right? We are on equal footing, but it's not that we're up here and homosexuality comes up. It's that so homosexuality is down here, and so are we in our sin issues. So equal footing is the, the right mindset, but the way we get there has been wrong. If, so if you've said, I used to think homosexuality was wrong, but now the more I get to know gay people, I think it's right. What you're saying is that you used to think you were better than them, and now you realize that you're the same, right? That's what we would call being a bigot, all right? That's not what we want to do. What we need to realize, though, is that we are on equal footing, but it's at a much lower level, right? And, and, so, and so with that being said, some people right now probably have already checked out on me. Like, I know where this is going, and I, I, I thought this was what he was going to say, and, and so now I'm out. I'm checking out, like, done. And so if that's you, I just, just want to encourage you real quick. You're probably in one of three camps this morning, okay? You're probably in one of three camps. Camp one are people who genuinely want to know how do we address this and work through this topic, Right? There's, there's people that really want to know, like, I, I'm confused on this. The waters are muddied, and I'd love to see them cleared up. There's another group of people who honestly don't want an answer. It's just easier not to have a stance. It's easier to be able to say, I don't, I don't know about this, and just to kind of put your fingers in your ear or be like an ostrich and put your head in the sand and just hide from it. Because that way, if someone asks you, you can just plead ignorance. And so I know some people are sitting there going, why did he talk about this? I love this church. <laughs> like I've, I've been searching for a church. I finally found it. And now they're going to talk about this. Ah! And you're just like, I don't want to know. And then there's a third camp, which is your mind's made up. Either your mind's made up. This is my stance and I'm not going to change. It's right. Or my mind's made up. This is my stance. It's wrong. And, and so wherever you are on that scale, I just want to ask that you would give me, give me 30 minutes. Just give me 30 minutes where you lean in because no matter where you are, I think there's something for you to gain here today, okay? And so just real quick, I want you to know that thinking through and talking through as heavy of a topic as homosexuality feels exhausting and overwhelming, all right? So let me just say this. I, I wanna do an exercise and you just participate with me. I'm gonna say this feels overwhelming and I want you guys to say, so I want you to speak. I want you guys to say, if you believe it, it is overwhelming, okay? It is overwhelming. So thinking through and talking about a topic this big and this weighty feels overwhelming. It is overwhelming. All right, let me pray for us. God, as we get ready to unpack how do we view homosexuality and, and how do we understand it and how do we step into it in a way that's filled with grace and truth where, where you are glorified? We desperately need your help. 
God, for people that are here today who have been damaged by people who have been abusive, thinking they're doing you a favor, speaking on your behalf, but doing so in an unloving way, God, please bring healing to their hearts. Please help them to, to think um, in a way that doesn't attach what I'm saying to those past emotions. God, for those who um, have an unhealthy view of this, God, help them to see it in a healthy way. God, I p- please help me as, as I preach not to, to bulk up and, and to act like I'm rallying the troops of those who agree with me. God, that, that's the worst thing that could happen right now. God, please let your grace flow and let, let your heart be seen through my heart. But God, help us all to, to see what's true. And um, God, we ask that you would speak that to us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so, so the historical Christian view, all right, for the, for the last 2,000 years, the historical Christian view has been that homosexuality was not God's original creative intention for humanity. Therefore, homosexual practice goes against God's will for all human beings, especially those who trust in Christ. Okay, that's, just, that's the historical Christian view, and that's the, the view that's upheld by virtually all current theologians. There are some that would disagree, but the vast majority of people would agree with that. But more and more people inside and outside of the church are hearing and reading arguments against this traditional stance. So what I wanna do is I wanna talk about some of the common pushback that you're probably hearing. And so this is gonna be just if you're sitting at the dinner table over holidays and you know religion and, and politics comes up and this is one of the issues, things that you might hear, or if you're with friends on you know college campus or, or just out and about and you're having a conversation with someone who might deal with this, there are, there are common things that push back against this traditional stance. And so what I wanna do is just talk about some of those because I know this are, these are things that you're hearing. Okay, the, the first common pushback is that Christians are picking and choosing. And th- this, this argument is normally framed up where it says, well, why is it that Christians elevate the, the topic of homosexuality and then ignore things that the Bible talks about, like eating pork and shrimp. And you, know, you never hear people talk about not boiling a goat in its mother's milk or mixing fabrics. Like, why is it that they pick this one thing and then just choose to lay all that other stuff to the side? That seems a little hypocritical and, and it, it seems dishonest and, and that's, that's just a dangerous thing to do. So, so why is it that Christians can pick and choose what they want? Right? And so maybe, maybe you've heard that and you've wondered, how do I, how, how, are we picking and choosing? Why is it that some things are okay and some things aren't and we focus in on some and ignore others? What's going on there? Well, the pushback that you're gonna get, some of it is gonna be academic and some of it's gonna be personal. All right, the, I used to think it's wrong, but now I know people and my view is changing. That's a personal objection, okay? This is an academic one and it has to do with how we understand the law and the gospel, okay? When I say law, I'm not talking about our, our, our laws in America. I'm talking about laws given in the Old Testament, 613 things that say, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. And, and how we understand the law in light of the gospel, okay? So the law in the Old Testament had a purpose of helping us to understand God's holiness. It had a purpose of helping us to understand our sinfulness. And it had a purpose of helping us understand what it takes to be in right standing with God. And the the ultimate purpose of all of that is that we should be longing 
for a savior. It shouldn't lead us to think I can pull up my bootstraps and get this done myself. It should lead us to say, I need a savior. I need God to accomplish what I cannot. Okay. Then in the new Testament, we have Jesus stepping into history and he fulfills all of the old Testament law. Everything in the Old Testament, Jesus perfectly lives out. And then at the cross, what he does is he exchanges his righteousness for our sinfulness. So he says here, I wanna credit all of the perfect things I've done to fulfill all of the Old Testament commands and everything that you would require to be in right standing with you. I wanna exchange that, God. You, you take that and put it in their account. And then you take what was in their account and put it in mine. And I'll pay that price on the cross on their behalf. So there's this this beautiful exchange where Jesus does the very thing the Old Testament should leave us longing for. Jesus accomplishes what we cannot, okay? And so as you look through the Old Testament and those, those 613 commands, what you'll see is that there are some things given that are good for all of humanity. They're good for everybody, for all people in all times in all cultures, okay? Things like don't murder. That's just good for everybody. Wherever you live, don't murder. Things like love your neighbor, you know, as yourself to treat others as you want to be treated. Those things are good for all people. Now, Israel needed them clarified for them, but that command transcends them. Other things in the Old Testament were given for a specific people for a specific period of time. Okay, it was for the purpose of setting Israel apart from other nations. And, and so in the New Testament, when Jesus fulfills all that, we have to ask the question, well, if none of that stuff in the Old Testament is binding on us, then why do some of the things from the Old Testament continue into the New Testament, right? So like if, if Jesus fulfills it all, then why do some things filter out and other things continue through? Well, the easiest way to think about it is that the things that filter through are things that transcend Israel. Those are things that are good for all human flourishing, right? So Jesus in Mark 7 looks at the food laws and he says, you can eat whatever you want. Cook the pig, barbecue it, smoke it, like eat the shrimp, have the, have the crawfish broil. Like, like you can do those things, eat whatever you want, right? So he clearly defines that the food laws are no longer binding on us. And then in the New Testament, we have homosexuality continued through. And so why would it continue through? Because it goes against God's design and living in that goes against our human flourishing. And so for us to flourish as a humanity, we can't live in the practice of homosexuality, right? And so when you think about, are we picking and choosing? It's not that we're, we're picking and choosing what we want from Leviticus. It's that we're doing our best to live out the life Jesus purchased for us to enjoy. So that, that kind of pushback has more to do with how we understand law and gospel, But homosexuality is not just an Old Testament thing. It's something that's brought up again in the New Testament. Things like food laws are not. Okay, and another another question with that would be, well, Jesus didn't address it, right? Like Jesus specifically talked about food in Mark 7, but he never talks about homosexuality. And so if Jesus doesn't say it, then I'm gonna side with Jesus. He was just about loving people, and so I'm not gonna worry about it. And so when we think about that, we have to understand, this is another academic thing. We have to understand that all of scripture is God breathed. All of scripture is inspired by God, written by human hands to say exactly what he wanted it to say. So the black letters written by guys like Paul are is just as authoritative and inspired and applicable for our lives as things that Mark and 
Matthew and John and Luke wrote, right? So the, the black is just as inspired as the red. But we also have to understand that Jesus's culture was different than Paul's. So why did Paul talk about it and why did Jesus not? Jesus, he lived out his ministry in a Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, homosexuality was understood to be wrong and it wasn't practiced or lived in. So Jesus didn't have to address it. Paul lived out his life and ministry in a Gentile culture where it was practiced and it was celebrated. Therefore, he had to address it. So one of the reasons why Jesus never spoke to it is it literally just wasn't an issue in his context. All right. And then another thing to think through on this is, is that although Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality, he's not neutral when it comes to sexual behavior. He's not neutral when it comes to sexual behavior. In Matthew 19, Jesus has asked a very, very controversial question about marriage and sexuality. And in verse four, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus was asked a controversial question about what, what's allowed sexually, what's a, allowed within marriage, and what does he do? He comes in and he defines it narrowly, right? So think about this. Let's say that you asked me, Jeff, I hear you say your wife's name, Lucy, a lot in sermons, but I don't see her a lot. Maybe she's working up in the children's ministry. Maybe she's hanging out in the crowd. Like, so who is your wife? I'd be like, well, not Amy. Well, I, I, not Karen, not Shannon. And I can just start like picking through and like picking out girls and saying, not her, not her, not her, not her. And eventually I could give all the people who are not and you can go like, he never mentioned her. And like, it's like, then you have her, right? And like, it's like, it's like, did I just point at Anna? No, Anna's not. Like that's one of the no, all right? But Lucy is, or I could say, Lucy's my wife. Lucy, right here. Like both accomplish the same purpose. So instead of Jesus broadly defining everything that's not allowed, he narrowly defines what is. And by implication says anything outside of that is wrong, right? So, so practicing homosexuality would fall outside of the bounds of God's original design. So Jesus, he, he didn't specifically say homosexuality, but he was not neutral on our sexual behavior. Another thing you might be hearing is that Paul meant something different. That well, when Paul says homosexuality in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, that, that he didn't have an understanding of sexual orientation. And so what, what he knew of was a man forcing himself on a boy or a master forcing himself on a servant. And so for him, it was this oppressive thing that he was against. But if he would have known orientation, if he would have known um, mutual same-sex relations like we do, that would have been something celebrated. And so there's, there's recently, in 1983, so this is pretty recently in the scale of the last 2,000 years. In 1983, this, this began to gain some popularity that maybe Paul didn't understand orientation and maybe when he was addressing homosexuality, he meant something different. So is that true? When Paul says the word homosexuality, does he think the same thing that we think? Did people in ancient times have an understanding of same-sex orientation? All right, what's, what's interesting about that is about 400 years before Jesus walked the earth, there's a guy named Aristophanes. And Aristophanes spoke in, in, um, in Plato's symposium. And um, in that, he talks about how Zeus split the original humans creating heterosexual and homosexual beings each searching to be reunited to their lost halves. 
And so, so what he understood is, is that there were people that were naturally attracted to the same sex. To make sense of that, he said that Zeus, when he created human beings, split them. Some were male and female that created halves, and then you're searching to be reunited. Other were male and male, and other were female and female. But hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth and before Paul penned anything in scripture, people were trying to make sense of the orientation question. So this idea that that sexual orientation and same-sex attraction wasn't understood in ancient times simply isn't true. The, The leading scholar on this topic is a guy named William Lauder. And so he's just known as the definitive expert on this. He's written over five volumes on the topic of homosexuality in ancient cultures. Um, he's a pastor in Australia, but, but even though he's a pastor, he still believes that homosexuality is okay. He believes that it should be celebrated and that we should not oppress anybody by keeping that from them. So for him, he would say like, yes, I'm a pastor. And yes, I believe that homosexuality is okay. All right. Now, William Lauder has done the most extensive research of anybody to date on this topic. And this is what he says. He says that nothing indicates that Paul is exempting some same-sex intercourse as acceptable. Nothing in scripture indicates that Paul is indicating that some same-sex intercourse is acceptable. And he goes on to say that to make Paul's words or to use Paul's words to leverage them for support of same-sex relations as biblical support would be to, to have, um, would be to, to basically to, to lack integrity in your scholarship. So here's a guy who wants the Bible to approve it, but in his study says you can't use it to approve it. So what Paul meant when he said homosexuality was the very same thing that we think of it when we look at it today. And another argument, we've got two more. Um, another one is this, the, the thought, this is more personal. Well, what if they're born that way? Like, are you telling me that if someone is born and they're more attracted to the same sex than the opposite sex, that that's wrong? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of jacked up for God to create someone one way and then say, you can't live like that? That just seems cruel. So, so how could God do that? If it's natural, then surely it can't be wrong. An interesting interview um, happened between Rick Warren. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life, New York Times bestselling author, leads a huge church called Saddleback out in California. He was being interviewed by Larry King. And Larry King asked him this question. And and he said, if you could prove that people were born with an inclination towards homosexuality, I would still think it's a sin. And then he went on to say, look, as a man, um, a heterosexual male, I have a desire to be attracted to other women besides my wife. I have a desire to be sexually active with women who are not my wife, but no one would say that's best for me, that's best for my wife, that's best for my family. Just because it feels right doesn't mean it's good. Okay, just because it feels right doesn't mean that it's good. You see, with the Christian worldview, we believe that sin has distorted God's image in us. Right? So none of us are perfectly displaying who we truly are. So who we most truly are can't be defined by our experiences in this world, but only by our creator and what he says about us. You see, through Christ, we're offered a far better and truer identity, not defined by our sexuality, but by God's love as he calls us his children. And the, the final pushback that I wanna talk about is just this, can we not just agree to disagree? 
this, this is gaining more and more traction. Where people say like, look, it, it seems like this is a really confusing thing. And it seems like more and more Christians are, are having differing opinions on this. Why can't we just agree to disagree? And so there's kind of this, this movement to say, can we not recategorize the topic? And so at Redeemer, we'll talk about things that are closed-handed issues and things that are open-handed issues. And so closed-handed issue is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If we open our hand to that, we cease to be Christians. Open-handed issue, spiritual gifts. Do people still have the gift of speaking in tongues and speaking in prophecies? We're open to discuss that and debate that in a healthy way, right? Open-handed. Close-handed, God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. If we, if we open that hand, we cease to be Christian. Open-handed, women's roles in ministry, right? Like, like there are things, there, there are different things that we'd say close-handed, open-handed, close-handed, open-handed. And so people are saying like, if this is such a confusing and debated topic, why can't we move it from close-hand to open-hand? Why can't we just recategorize it? And here's what we have to understand. For the last 2,000 years throughout all of church history, across all cultures and all peoples, these open-handed issues like modes of baptism, spiritual gifts, women in ministry, predestination and free will, those things have been consistently debated for nearly 2,000 years. Homosexuality hasn't been debated up until very recently in our culture. Could it be that everyone else got it wrong and we finally figured it out? Or could it be that God's been pretty clear and we just don't like what he has to say? Something that's really, that should cause us to pause and think about this is that during the Civil War, there were Presbyterian pastors in the South who were using scripture to support slavery. Now, over the course of church history, no other people or time had used scripture to justify the oppression of people. The trajectory from beginning to end from Genesis to Revelation is that of freedom. So Christians throughout history have led the charge to end slavery, not keep it going. Then all of a sudden, in one particular culture, at one particular time, people started finding support for it. British Presbyterian pastors wrote to their American counterparts and posed that question. Could it be that if no other culture or time or people found support for slavery in the Bible, but you now have, could it be that you're reading scripture through, through cultural blinders? And what happened? That's exactly what they were doing. They were looking for evidence for something they wanted to be there when it wasn't there and they found it. Could it be that we have cultural blinders on? Where because this is personal, because we know people, we want it to be in there that this is okay but if no other culture has found it, could it be that we're putting on blinders? Okay, so, so what do we do with this? Like I said, there, there are more objections than we have time for. And, 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 and I would encourage you to dig into this on your own. There are good answers and good responses, but I, just want, I wanna look at three questions to wrap up. And when I say wrap up, I mean like 15 minutes. Um, so, so three questions. The, the first question is, is homosexuality wrong? The second question is, is same-sex attraction a sin? And uh, there's a difference there. I want to explain that to you. And then how can we as the church respond in grace and truth? Okay? So is homosexuality wrong? If you look at verse 9 in 1 Corinthians 6, there's an important word, practice. Okay? Practice. We ain't talking about the game. We're talking about practice. Um, I mean, 
living in the practice of homosexuality is just as bad as these other sins. Okay, is, is homosexuality wrong? Living in the practice of homosexuality is just as bad as these other sins. The church has handled this horribly by devaluing the other sins and overemphasizing homosexuality. We just need to confess that, ask for forgiveness to those who have felt the weight and the damage from that. But at the end of the day, like we need to come down to equal footing that we all have sin issues that we're walking through, but this is one of them. Okay, the second thing, is same-sex attraction a sin? Okay, is same-sex attraction a sin? The answer to that is no. Okay, the answer to that is no. This is where, like I said, if you came in here and you had your mind made up, this is where like, you're like, it's, all, it's absolutely wrong no matter what. Like, I want you guys to see something here. Okay, is same-sex attraction a sin? No. The sexualization of that attraction is sinful. But just because you're more attracted to the same sex doesn't mean you're in sin. If you haven't let that attraction materialize into lust and action, you're not meant to carry the weight of guilt and shame associated with those living in sin. So I truly believe that there are people who have a same-sex attraction where they are more attracted to the same sex than the opposite sex. And I have full confidence that I can look at them and say, that is not a sin. But when you sexualize that attraction, when it becomes lustful, when it becomes an action that you live out, that's where it moves from, from not a sin to something that is sinful. Okay, so, so maybe you're here today and you're saying, that's me. Like maybe you're here today and you're saying, that, like, that's, that's my story. And I don't know what to do with that. If that's you, I just want to tell you a couple of things. Okay, if this is your struggle, if you have unwanted same-sex attraction, you need to know that your identity is in Christ. Okay, your identity is not tied to your sexuality. You're not who the world says you are. You're not what your sin says you are. You are who Christ says you are. Okay, he looks at you and he calls you a saint. All right, if you're in Christ, God looks at you and he says, you are a saint. And that's an identity that's far better than this world has to offer. Another thing you have to know, and I want you to, to, to hear me clearly on this, God's call isn't for you to be heterosexual. God's call is for you to be holy. He's not trying to magically make you attracted to the, to the opposite sex. He's trying to make you more attracted to Jesus. Okay, so if, you, if you're wrestling with this and you're sitting there going like, well, why doesn't God just take it away? I'm telling you, as Christians, we all have these thorns in our side that we wrestle with, okay? And, 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 and so the call isn't for you to magically all of a sudden be heterosexual. The call is for you to be holy and to pursue Christ. And with that, we have to know that pursuing Christ, we're never promised that it'll be easy, but we are promised that it will be immeasurably worth it. And the truth is, is that your present life might be really messy, but the future will be glorious, okay? If this is your struggle, I wanna let you know that, that there are resources out there for, for true help. There's a counselor from Nashville that's just, I, I think on the cutting edge of helping people work through and deal with unwanted same-sex attraction. Um, he's, he's kind of been in contact with me this week. And just, just so you know, there are resources that we can make available to you and help you with. So if this is your story, please know there is hope. 
And we would love to walk through this with you. Um, But I want to get to the final question. And that's how can we as a church step into this sensitive and divisive topic with grace and truth? How can we as the church step into this sensitive and divisive topic with grace and truth? Here's what we need to know. Narrative is powerful, okay? The power of narrative can shift culture and change societies, right? And so right now there is a narrative that's being enforced. It's being enforced on the television shows that we watch. It's being enforced in the movies that we go to. It's being enforced on commercials that are quickly displayed between shows. It's, it's enforced on articles we read. It's, it's enforced on the songs that we listen to and catchy um, hooks that we find ourselves humming and repeating. Like this narrative is being enforced over and over again and it's powerful. And so the narrative that's being enforced culturally looks like this. People become aware of their sexuality. They embrace it as their true identity and they live it out. And then despite those in their life who are unable to accept it, they still find a way to flourish. That's the narrative that we're seeing enforced and that's the narrative we're seeing embraced and it is powerful, okay? And so with that being said, what we need isn't a better apologetic like if you just come away with this, you've got, I've got five cultural pushbacks and I've got responses to all of them. I'm going to win the day. Like you're probably going to lose. All right. <laughs> what we need isn't a better apologetic. What we need is a better story. What we need is a better narrative. And that's what Jesus is bringing us into. So how do we as a church help this story to be told? So there is a better narrative, a more powerful narrative of the gospel that Jesus has invited us into, but we're not telling it. So how do we as a church help this story to be told? I think there's three things. One is, is we have to be a safe environment. We have to be, a, if someone steps in and, and steps up and says, I have same-sex attraction, I don't know what to deal with it. I don't know what to do with it we need to look at them with complete honesty and say, we love you no matter what. That needs to be verbalized. That needs to be said. That needs to be believed. We love you no matter what. People need to know that they're not the first. They're not gonna be the last to struggle with this. And they need to know that this is their story to tell, that it's a safe place, that if, they, if they're wrestling with this behind closed doors, it'll stay behind closed doors unless they want it out. Like we need to be a safe environment for this to be talked about and processed. It breaks my heart to know how many people are wrestling with this in silence, internalizing it and fighting deep depression and suicidal thoughts because they don't have a safe spot outside of culture to process this. Like the church needs to be the environment where this can be wrestled with. The next thing is we need to be grace-filled. And here's what I mean by grace. When, when I'm talking about walking next to someone in grace, I have a very specific way that I think that looks that, that I want you guys to know. If you're walking in grace looks like I get to do whatever I want, you're not walking in grace. You're walking in rebellion. Okay? If you're walking in grace looks like I can do whatever I want. I can have heaven and, and live like hell on earth. You're not walking in grace, you're walking in rebellion. 
What walking in grace looks like is fighting to believe that Jesus is better. So if we're gonna be grace-filled people, like let's just peel back from the homosexuality debate for a second. If we're gonna be grace-filled people, what's your fight right now? What are you fighting to believe that Jesus is better than? Like there are real desires that we have that we are actively walking away from. What are your desires? Maybe for you, it's unforgiveness. I just, I can't forgive my mom. If you knew what she did to me, like you would know like this is weighty. So maybe that's your fight to believe that Jesus is better and that you can forgive. Maybe for you, it's like, I'm just, I keep looking at crap online and I don't want to. And I know like it's damaging me and it's affecting my marriage and it's affecting the way that I view women. And like, you know, like I don't want this God. And like, and you, you're fighting to believe that Jesus is better than that temporary false satisfaction. Maybe for you, it's, it's status. You're sitting there going like, I so desperately want to climb that ladder and to be the top dog but I'm gonna make the sacrifice that, that might hinder that because I believe that Jesus is better. Like we have real desires and we have to fight to believe that Jesus is better. So, so if we're gonna be graceful people, you need to know what's your fight or what are your fights? Because here's what's the deal. When you, when you know what you're fighting to believe that Jesus is better than, you can look at your life and say, this is where I failed. This is where I failed. This is where I failed. And you will see failure after failure after failure to believe that he's better. Can I get an amen? Like how many of you have written something down in a journal or prayed the same prayer for years, pleading for something to change and you're still in it? It's me. It's me. You look, you look at my prayer journals. I have the same prayer opening and closing almost every prayer journal from 2002. Right, like, like this is, and so what happens when I fail is because of the cross, I know that God is kind. That he's not angry at me. That anger was punished on the cross. So God doesn't look at me pissed off. That was absorbed by Christ. So there is kindness, there is patience, and there is grace. You see, the more I know my fight, And the more I live in my failure, the more I know the grace that's extended to me. And as I I experience that grace, when I walk next to my friend who's fighting same-sex attraction and they fail again and again and again, you know how I respond to them? With kindness and patience and grace. Like the only way that we're gonna truly be graceful people is if we're fighting on our own and understand what's been given to us. We've got to be a grace-filled church. We all have to fight to believe Jesus is better than something. So what's your fight? And the final thing is we need to be a truth-filled church. We need to be a safe environment, a grace-filled church, and we need to be a truth-filled church. And what I mean by truth is, is this is twofold. One is, is we've got to be truthful about what sin is, what it cost Christ on the cross, and what its present consequences are for us. Like eternal consequences, those have been absorbed, right? But there are present consequences. We need to be truthful about that. We need to be truthful about that. I was, I was battling extreme anxiety this morning, thinking about talking about this. This is not on the church growth model, by the way. Like, talk about this. People flock to your church. It's like, no, people are going to leave. Like, like, like uh, anxiety. 
rising. And a, and a good friend of mine walked up to me. And like, I, I had just, I'm praying for him, praying for him, praying for him. And that means so much. But a good friend walked up and said, Jeff, we're doing the exact opposite of what other churches refuse to do. And people are going to hell as a result. Like, that's what I needed to hear. Like, let's be truthful about the consequences of this stuff. Let's be truthful about what is sinful, what is pulling people away from God. But we also have to be truthful about the gospel, okay? We have to preach gospel truths again and again and again. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 6, as Paul wraps up the chapter, he talks about this gratitude for Jesus' self-sacrifice on our behalf as we realize the power that Jesus has given us and we realize the, the beauty of his grace extended to us, it gives us power to live this new life, but we have to preach those truths to each other. And so here's the gospel truth that we all need to know. God doesn't love you for your obedience. He loves you for Christ's obedience on your behalf. God doesn't love you for your obedience. He loves you for Christ's obedience on your behalf. And that's good news for all of us. And the more we look to the cross and know that for ourselves, the more we'll be able to walk next to others and help them in their fight. God, I know that this is not an easy thing to process. God, I know there are people here today that have been wrestling with this as their fight, as their story. And and God, I ask that you would Help them to feel your arms in the most loving way wrapped around them um, in a spiritual way, but also tangibly through the presence of this church. God, let us be a people who are willing to step shoulder to shoulder and side by side to love on everybody. God, I know that people here today have been damaged and just deeply wounded by someone carrying the flag of Christ in a, in a harmful way. God, help the people who have been harmful to realize their fault, lead them to repent and to seek restoration, but God, also be with those who have been hurt and bring healing. God, be with us as a church. Give us a humble confidence to lean into your word to be a safe environment where this can be talked about. God, we want a better narrative, a better story to be proclaimed loudly to our society and to our world because we know it can shift and change culture towards you. God, let us be a grace-filled environment where we are those who are constantly and continually overflowing with kindness and patience and love. But God, let us be truth-filled Let us call sin what sin is, but let us also lean into the truth of the gospel and what you've done on our behalf to save us. God, you're beautiful and amazing, and we want to know you and live like you. Help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.